Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everyone. Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Canada EHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. Before I get to the episode, I want to mention that in March, I'm hitting three years since I started podcasting full-time. And I want to do a Q&A episode, so I'll answer questions about Canadian history, about myself. Just email craig at canadaehx.com. Today, we enter into the second half of the last decade of the 19th century, and it was a big one for Canada in several ways. As usual, I'll go through the important births, vents, and deaths that came in this year. On February 1st, the first copper furnace started operation and trail at the smelter that would come to define the community for the next century and more. By August 10th, the smelter created its first gold brick, and by December, a train was running to trail. On February 14th, the Winnipeg Victorias would win their first Stanley Cup after defeating the Montreal Victorias 2-0 at the Victoria Skating Rink. The Winnipeg team is the first non-Montreal team to win the Stanley Cup, and the last one until 1901, when the Winnipeg Victorias once again claimed the Stanley Cup. On March 8th, Charlotte Witten would be born in Renfrew, Ontario. After attending Queen's University, where she was a star on the women's hockey team, she would become the first female editor of the Queen's Journal. She then became a civil servant, working as the private secretary for Thomas Lowe, the Minister of Trade under William Lyne Mackenzie King. In 1922, she would become the founding director of the Canadian Council on Child Welfare, serving in that position until 1941. In 1934, she was named a commander of the Order of the British Empire, and also served on the Social Questions Committee of the League of Nations. Her most notable contribution to Canadian history, though, would come following the death of Mayor Grenville Goodwin of Ottawa in August 1951. At the time, Whitten was on the Ottawa Board of Control, and following the death of Mayor Goodwin, she was appointed as the acting mayor. She was then confirmed by City Council on September 30, 1951 to remain as mayor until the end of the normal three-year term. And while she was not the first woman to serve as a mayor in Canadian history, she is the first woman to be mayor of a major Canadian city. She would serve until 1956, two full years, and would then serve again as mayor from 1960 to 1964. 
That year, she opposed the new Canadian flag, preferring the Canadian red ensign. She called Pearson's design a white badge of surrender, waving three dying maple leaves, which might as well be three white feathers on a red background, a symbol of cowardice. Charlotte Whitten is Canada's most famous living woman. Five times mayor of Ottawa, reformer, author, TV personality. She also has had an impressive record as a social worker in the 20s and 30s. Dr. Whitten, to start off with, what has been your most satisfying achievement so far? Just keeping alive, Mr. Hamilton, and through 11 years, 16 years in the council as mayor and alderman now. And I think that's some achievement to survive that. You started off in literature and history. How on earth did you get into the social work and uh, that sort of thing? And... Well, I took my degree in English and history and at Queen's. And when I took it, you see, I've been around a long time, Mr. Hamilton. I graduated in 1917. Well, that's, what, 60 years ago? Of course, I had a good university, not an instant one. Well, the Interchurch Council on Social Service was being set up in Toronto to start combining the social service departments of the Presbyterian Church, the Baptist, and the Anglicans. We always come in at the last one that's been tried out on the dog. And um, <laughs> they were uh, trying a council of social service, a Baptist Latter-day Christ. They were setting up an interchurch council. Dr. Shearer, the Presbyterian Social Service Department, was to be head. And they were starting this little magazine, Social Welfare. And Dr. Shear was, uh, and he was looking for an assistant who could take the editing of that. Now, there are accusations that Witten was anti-Semitic, and the Canadian Jewish Congress has said that she was instrumental in keeping Jewish orphans out of Canada because she felt Jewish people did not make good immigrants. According to Patricia Rook, the co-author of her biography, she was opposed to all non-British immigration and was racist against Ukrainians. And while her racial views have discolored the view of her following her death in 1975, her contribution as the first female mayor of a major Canadian city is without question. On March 20th, the legendary Wap May was born in Carberry, Manitoba. Wap May deserves his own episodes, and he got one. As a result, I'll be glossing over his life here rather than going in-depth. May would join the Canadian Army in 1916 and eventually apply to the Royal Flying Corps, fighting his first aerial combat on April 20th, 1918. On April 21st, he would be the last pilot pursued and attacked by the Red Baron before Roy Brown, another Canadian, or possibly Australians on the ground, would shoot down the legendary German pilot. By the end of the war, May had shot down 13 enemy aircraft and earned the Distinguished Flying Cross. Following the war, he would set up the first airport in Canadian history in Edmonton, where the Mayfield neighbourhood is now located. In September 1919, he would take part in the first use of an aircraft in a manhunt as Edmonton police pursued a man convicted of murder. In December 1928, he would take part in the race against death when he and his co-pilot flew vital medicine to treat diphtheria to Little Red River, Alberta, in the freezing cold with an open cockpit plane. His actions saved hundreds of lives, and I also covered that in a podcast episode back in 2020. In 1932, he would take part in the hunt for the Mad Trapper, another episode I covered in 2022, helping to find Albert Johnson, who was wanted for shooting an RCMP officer. During the Second World War, May would help set up the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan and also trained pilots to search and rescue in Montana during the war, which earned him the Medal of Freedom from the United States Army Air Forces. 
On June 21, 1952, he would pass away from a stroke while hiking with his son. Today, May is widely honoured, including through songs, the Wap May Fault Zone, and even a rock on Mars called Wap May. On April 13th, Sir John Christian Schultz would pass away at the age of 56. Born in Upper Canada in 1840, he would save enough money to study medicine at Queen's College and then Victoria College. And while he didn't graduate from either place, he did call himself a physician and moved to the Red River Settlement in 1861 and worked as a businessman and speculator. He would build a general store that was the first building at Portage in Maine and also established a museum and Masonic Lodge in the new community that was springing up. In 1868, he was arrested for improper business practices, but his wife and supporters broke into the prison and released him. His business practices made him unpopular among the Francophone community, and he was one of the leading opponents of Louis Riel's provisional government. He would be taken prisoner by Riel, but would escape soon after. In 1871, he would be elected to the House of Commons, where he would serve until 1882. That year, he became a member of the Senate of Canada, serving until 1888. Once his term as senator was done, he became the 5th Lieutenant Governor of Manitoba from 1888 to 1895, and he would travel to Mexico to improve his declining health, where he would pass away. On April 27th, Sir Mackenzie Bowell resigned as Prime Minister due to cabinet infighting. He had become Prime Minister in 1894 after the sudden death of Prime Minister John Thompson, because he was the most senior cabinet member. The Manitoba schools question had spread beyond the borders of Manitoba and was now a national issue. Bowell attempted to find a compromise on the issue, but that only caused problems within his own party. A cabinet revolt would happen in early 1896, forcing Bowell out. Bowell would remain as a senator until his death in 1917. By that point, he had spent 50 continuous years in the House of Commons since the very start of Canada as a country. On May 1st, Sir Charles Tupper would become Prime Minister. Tupper had served as the Premier of Nova Scotia from 1864 to 1867, leading the province into Canadian Confederation. Upon becoming Prime Minister, he would serve until July 8th, following his loss in the June 23rd election. His time as Prime Minister, 69 days, is the shortest in Canadian history for any Prime Minister. On May 11th, Edmund Flynn would become the new Premier of Quebec, replacing Sir Louis-Olivier Talion. Flynn had served in the Legislative Assembly since 1878 and would take over as the leader of the party, which made him the 10th Premier of Quebec. He would serve for just one year, but during that time he focused on public works, crown land adjudication, and improving the quality of primary education within the province. He would suffer an election defeat the next year, ending the last Conservative Party leadership in Quebec history. On May 18th, Brock Chisholm was born in Oakville, Ontario. Named after Sir Isaac Brock, his great-great-grandfather was the founder of Oakville. Brock would enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Force in 1915 and would be twice wounded, while earning the Military Cross with Barr. After the war, he would become a doctor and would then earn a degree from Yale University, specializing in the mental health of children. He believed that children should not be encouraged to believe in Santa Claus, the Bible, or anything supernatural. At the outbreak of the Second World War, he would join the war effort as a psychiatrist, dealing with the psychological aspects of soldier training, eventually becoming the Director General of Medical Services. As a result, he was the first psychiatrist to become the head of medical ranks of an army in the world. In 1946, he helped to draft the constitution of the World Health Organization and also helped choose its name. In 1948, with the establishment of the World Health Organization, he became the first director general, serving until 1953. And he would pass away on February 4, 1971, at the age of 74, after a series of strokes. On May 26, the Port Elise Bridge disaster would strike Victoria. A streetcar loaded with 143 people celebrating the Victoria Day long weekend crashed through the bridge into the upper harbour. 
Falling into the water, a total of 55 men, women, and children would be killed, making it one of the worst transit disasters in British Columbia history. Due to how the streetcar fell in the water, only those on the left side of the streetcar could escape. On June 12th, the coroner's jury concluded that Consolidated Electric Railway Company was responsible for the disaster because it allowed the streetcar to be loaded with more weight than the bridge could support. The city of Victoria was also found to be guilty of contributory negligence because the bridge had not been well maintained. The disaster would force the Consolidated Electric Railway Company into bankruptcy and it would become the British Columbia Electric Railway in 1897. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On June 19th, John Robinson would pass away at the age of 75. Born in 1821 in Upper Canada to Sir John Robson, he would represent Canada in the inaugural international cricket match in 1844. In the 1850s, he began to serve as an alderman in Toronto and served as mayor briefly in 1856. In 1872, he was elected to the House of Commons, serving until 1874, and then from 1875 to 1880. From 1880 to 1887, he served as the 5th Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. On June 22nd, Leonard Murray would be born in Granton, Nova Scotia. Murray was one of the first 21 recruits of the Royal Naval College of Canada, and after graduating in 1913, served in the First World War and would reach the rank of Lieutenant. He would help to set up troop convoys across the Atlantic using techniques that would be used again during the Second World War. He would continue to serve in the Navy throughout the interwar years, eventually becoming a captain by 1938. When the Second World War erupted, he was appointed as Deputy Chief of the Naval Staff and would play a key role in the build-up of the Navy to 332 vessels. He would be promoted to Commodore and then Rear Admiral in 1941. In 1943, after giving Sir Winston Churchill a tour of Halifax, he would be appointed as the Commander of the Order of the British Empire and a Commander of the Order of Bath in 1944. Thanks to the work of Murray and his efforts to keep ships safe going across the Atlantic, the largest convoy of the Second World War, 167 merchant ships moving 1.5 million tons of cargo, traveled from New York to the United Kingdom from July 17, 1944 to August 3, 1944 without losing a single ship. Following the Halifax riot that occurred on VE Day, when thousands of sailors got too rowdy and caused $5 million in damages, he would quickly retire from the Navy and move to the United Kingdom where he remained for the rest of his life, and he passed away on November 25, 1971, at the age of 75. On June 23rd, a monumental shift in federal politics would occur when Wilfrid Laurier and his Liberal Party swept to a majority victory in the federal election. By the time of the election, the Conservative Party was in disarray and had gone through several Prime Ministers since the death of Sir John A. Macdonald in 1891. With the Manitoba schools question, support in both English and French Canada would be eroded for the party. The Liberal Party, seen as a party that pursued free trade and radical change, instead embraced a more conservative platform, allowing them to gain former supporters of the Conservative Party. Wilfrid Laurier, the leader of the Liberals, also supported the national policy, which was important to business interests in Montreal and Toronto. Laurier was also a big supporter of provincial rights and several Liberal premiers supported him. 
On election day, the Conservatives actually took 48.2% of the votes, compared to 41.2% for the Liberals, but they suffered huge losses in Quebec due to the feeling that Tupper was an imperialist. The Liberals would take 117 seats, up from 90 in 1891, while the Conservatives took 86 seats, down 31 from the previous election. The Conservatives also gained support in Manitoba and parts of Ontario, along with Nova Scotia, losing everywhere else. With Laurier winning the election, Tupper actually refused to cede power, stating that Laurier could not form a government even though the Liberals had 55% of the seats. Governor-General Lord Aberdeen would not allow Tupper to make appointments as Prime Minister, forcing Tupper to resign and letting Laurier take power. As for Wilfrid Laurier, he would serve as Prime Minister until 1911. His 15 years as Prime Minister is the longest unbroken term of office for a Prime Minister, and today he's often cited as one of the greatest Prime Ministers in Canadian history. On July 2nd, Prudence Heward was born in Montreal. She would become a leading figure in Canadian painting during her life. After spending time in England, she would have her first public showing at the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts in Toronto in 1924, but it wouldn't be until 1932 that she would have her first solo exhibition held at the Scott Gallery in Montreal. After some time in Paris, where she spent time with Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, she would get a big boost in 1929 when her painting, Girl on a Hill, won the top prize at a competition held by the National Gallery of Canada. After exhibiting with the Group of Seven, she would join the Beaver Hall Group and was a co-founder of the Canadian Group of Painters and the Contemporary Art Society. She would sadly die in 1945 at the age of 50 in Los Angeles. Today, her work hangs across Canada and a stamp was issued in her honour in 2010. On July 10th, Theresa Cosgrain was born in Quebec. The daughter of wealthy parents and the wife of a prominent politician in the House of Commons, she would lead the women's suffrage movement in Quebec prior to the Second World War. In 1921, she founded the Provincial Franchise Committee and campaigned for the right for women to vote in elections, which would not happen until 1940. In 1942, she stood as an independent liberal in the same riding that had been held by both her father and her husband. And while she didn't win, she would become one of the federal vice presidents of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, and she led the Quebec wing of the party from 1952 to 1957, making her the first female leader of a political party in Canada. In the 1960s, she would campaign against nuclear weapons and founded the Quebec Wing of Voice of Women, and she served as national president from 1952 to 1963. In 1970, she was named to the Canadian Senate, serving for nine months until she had to retire at the age of 75. In the last decade of her life, she was awarded the Order of Canada, received the Governor's General Award in commemoration of the person's case, and several honorary degrees. And she would pass away on November 3, 1981, at the age of 85. After her death, she received the Bar of Montreal Medal, a stamp was issued in her honour, and she was honoured on the $50 banknote in 2004, and a statue was unveiled of her in 2012. On July 14th, Jerry Potts died at the age of 56. A Métis man, he became a legendary scout, interpreter, and plainsman in Western Canada. During his life, he also worked as a fur trader and horse trader, and he helped guide the Northwest Mounted Police on their march west in 1874. Throughout his life, due to his mother being murdered by a man drunk on whiskey, Potts had a vendetta against whiskey runners. Over the course of his life, he said he had killed at least 40 whiskey runners. Due to his service to the Northwest Mounted Police, he was buried with full military honours and with the honorary rank of Special Constable at Fort McLeod. On July 17th, James Mitchell would become the 8th Premier of New Brunswick. He would replace Andrew Blair, who had been Premier since 1883. Like so many other politicians this year, he was enticed to join the cabinet of Wilfrid Laurier, opening the door for Mitchell. 
Mitchell would only serve until 1897 when he resigned due to ill health and he would pass away less than two months after resigning. On July 20th, George H. Murray would become Premier of Nova Scotia when Premier William Stevens Fielding left provincial politics to join Laurier's cabinet at the House of Commons. Murray would have an immense impact on Nova Scotia, serving as the Premier of the province until 1923. His 26 years and 188 days as Premier is the longest unbroken tenure as the head of government in Canadian history. As Premier, he would push road, bridge, and railway projects, improve the post-secondary education system, and would help found the Nova Scotia Agricultural College and the Nova Scotia Technical College. He would introduce prohibition in the province in 1906, workers' compensation in 1911, and women's suffrage in 1918. Murray's government would also appoint public health officers, establish county health clinics, and fund a research hospital for tuberculosis patients. On July 5th, Arthur Sturgis Hardy would become the fourth Premier of Ontario, replacing Sir Oliver Mowat. Mowat had served as Premier of Ontario since 1872, the longest consecutive service by any Premier in Ontario history. Prime Minister Laurier would convince him to leave provincial politics to serve as the Minister of Justice in the House of Commons. As for Hardy, he would be chosen as the new Premier and would serve until 1899. In his 60s, he did not have the energy to take the government forward, but he would survive the 1898 election. The same year, he passed an act that allowed all pine cut under license on Crown lands to be sawn into lumber in Canada, something that angered Michigan lumbermen. He would retire from politics in 1899 and die two years later. On July 27th, Anne Savage was born in Montreal. From 1914 to 1918, she would study at the Art Association of Montreal, followed by time in Minnesota at the Minneapolis School of Art. In 1922, she became the art teacher at the Baron Bing High School, where she would remain until 1947. In 1921, she joined the Beaver Hall Hill Group and also spent time at the Ontario College of Art, working with Arthur Lismer, another member of the Group of Seven. In 1933, she was one of the founding members of the Canadian Group of Painters, serving as its president in 1949 and 1960. Throughout her life, she spoke out against gender inequality and also pushed for the importance of the arts in our lives. She would pass away on March 25, 1971, at the age of 74 in Montreal. On August 12, Mitchell Hepburn was born in St. Thomas, Ontario. After serving in the First World War and then getting hit with the Spanish flu, he would return to his family's onion farm to work. In 1926, he joined the United Farmers of Ontario and was elected to the House of Commons in 1926, serving until 1934. That year, he'd be elected to the Ontario Legislature, where he would remain until 1945. During his time in the Ontario Legislature, he would serve as the 11th Premier of Ontario from 1934 to 1942. Elected at the age of 37, he is the youngest Premier in the history of Ontario. As a young Premier, he would appear on the cover of Time magazine in 1937, and he quickly made changes in Ontario as its leader. This included laying off civil servants, closing the home of the lieutenant governor, auctioning off the limousines of the previous government, putting money into the mining industry, introducing compulsory milk pasteurization, and also making the Dion Quintuplets wards of the provincial crown in response to their exploitation at the Chicago World's Fair earlier that year. We're going to establish a department of youth. We're going to lower the voting age to 18. Now that's a challenge to the young people of today not to take ready-made opinions entirely, but rather to study the economy of our own country. Frankly, I would prefer to take the judgment of many young men and women of 18 than I would the judgment of a lot of hard-shelled old Tories who have been voting wrong ever since they defeated Laurier uh, in the reciprocity issue of 1911. It seems to me that everyone responsible enough to undertake marriage, a job, to pay taxes, 
and to be called upon for military service, ought to be able to be, uh, take a hand, rather, in deciding who his government representative should be for a period of five years. After resigning as Premier in 1942, he would continue to serve as the Treasurer of Ontario until 1943. On January 5, 1953, he would pass away at the age of 56. Today, two schools are named for him in the province. Arguably the biggest event of the year was the discovery of gold in the Yukon on August 17th, which would ignite the Klondike Gold Rush. Over the next few episodes, looking at the subsequent years in Canadian history, I'll likely be talking a lot about the Gold Rush, so here I am just focusing on the Gold Rush in 1896. Everything started when an American prospector named George Carmack and his wife, Kate Carmack, along with her brother, Skookum Jim, were traveling down the river. They began looking for gold on what would become Bonanza River, which at the time was called Rabbit Creek. While it was not known who discovered the gold, George Carmack or Skookum Jim, the group agreed that George Carmack would be the official discoverer because Skookum Jim was indigenous and there was a worry that the authorities would not recognize his claim as a result. Carmack would measure out four claims along the river, two for himself and one each for Jim and Charlie. The claims were registered the next day at a police post at Forty Mile River and news spread quickly in the area of the find. The area was already known for some small gold strikes including at Stewart River in 1885, Forty Mile River in 1886, Sixty Mile in 1891 and Birch Creek in 1892. As a result by 1896 there were already 1,600 prospectors in the Yukon River Basin. By the end of August, all of Bonanza Creek had been claimed by miners. One prospector then set down a claim on a creek that would become known as Eldorado Creek, and he discovered new sources of gold there, which was even richer than Bonanza. Claims quickly began to be sold between miners for huge sums. Not everyone began to make money from finding gold. Joseph Ledoux, an American who had lived in the Yukon since 1882, operated a trading post in the Yukon River, 70 kilometers above the mouth of the Klondike. Instead of staking claims for gold, he chose instead to stake out 65 hectares of swamp and moose pasture at the river, calling it Dawson City, and made a fortune selling lots and lumber to build buildings. Within two years, 40,000 people would be in the new community. By Christmas, Circle City, Alaska had received word about the fines and prospectors began to set out from the city to get to the Klondike, despite the harsh winter weather. Among those miners, there was a real worry that all the best claims would be taken. At this time, the outside world had not heard about the gold strike, but some individuals in Ottawa had found out, but little attention would be paid to it. It would not be until June 1897 when the gold rush really kicked into high gear. But that's a story for another episode. On August 30th, Raymond Massey was born in Toronto. If his last name sounds familiar, it's because his brother Vincent Massey was already talked about on the show and would go on to become the Governor General of Canada. As for Raymond, he would serve with the Canadian Expeditionary Force during the First World War and then with the Canadian Siberian Expeditionary Force. In 1919, he returned home to Canada and began to sell farm implements but found himself drawn to theatre. I thought, I'm going on the stage. I'm going over. Uh, Mr. Drew last night told me that uh, 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 I should try London. So, uh, uh, and uh, he was silent for quite some time. And then he said, I think you're right. I think you perhaps could be a very good actor. Uh, I want you to make one promise, not to practice on Sunday or play on Sunday. And I don't act in indecent ways. Well, I knew I couldn't really carry that promise out because Sunday rehearsal and all that sort of thing. I crossed my fingers. I couldn't offend that old man or cause him any worries. And he's... 
His first acting job was on the London stage in 1922 in the play The Zone. He would appear in dozens of plays over the next decade, numbering as many as 80. In 1928, he would appear in his first film, High Treason. In 1931, he played Sherlock Holmes in the first talking movie of the famous detective. He would appear in dozens of films over the course of his career, earning an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor for his portrayal of Abraham Lincoln in Abe Lincoln in Illinois in 1940. His most famous role would come as Dr. Gillespie in the show Dr. Kildare that ran from 1961 to 1966. He would pass away on July 29, 1983, at the age of 86 in Los Angeles. On November 3rd, Madeline Fritz would be born in St. John, New Brunswick. She would go on to become a noted Canadian paleontologist and a professor at the University of Toronto, where she taught vertebrae studies at the university. Known as a pioneer researcher in the Paleozoic fossil, Biazoa, she would earn the title of the great-grandmother of the Paleozoic Biazoa. From 1936 to 1955, she was the Associate Director of the Royal Ontario Museum and served as a paleontology professor at the University of Toronto from 1956 to 1967. She would pass away on August 20, 1990, at the age of 94. On November 7th, Henry Botterell is born in Ottawa. In 1916, he would join the Royal Naval Air Service and become a probationary flight officer with the service in 1917. On August 15, 1917, he received his wings and was flying with the number 8 Naval Squadron the next month. On September 18, 1917, his plane crashed at Dunkirk after his engine failed, resulting in head injuries, broken teeth, and a fractured leg. He would spend six months in the hospital and was sent back to Canada, but before he could, he was able to do 10 hours of refresher training and was approved to fly once more. He would then serve as a pilot in the Royal Air Force from May 11th to November 27, 1918, flying in dozens of missions and shooting down one German observation balloon. His real mark on history, though, is the fact that he lived to the age of 106 when he passed away on January 3, 2003. This made him the last surviving pilot in the world to have seen action during the First World War. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1896. Next week, we're looking at 1897. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.